Insecure, a security podcast, brought to you by the Center for Global Security Challenges. See it, say it, secure it. I am Dr. Marine Guéguin, a research fellow for the Center for Global Security Challenges at the University of Leeds. And I am Dr. Harry Swinhoe, a research fellow at the Center for Global Security Challenges at the University of Leeds. And together, we will be discussing security in an increasingly insecure world. This podcast aims at bringing together postgraduate researchers, early career researchers, and established academics to discuss their research and explore the six core themes of the Center for Global Security Challenges, gender security, global reordering, health security, peace and conflict, terrorism and political violence, and environmental security. We launched the podcast and our first season in April 2021. For the first season, we discussed climate security, terrorism, and the future of terrorism studies. The second season will bring episodes on the future of security studies, gender security, and nuclear weapons, civil war, and more. So stay tuned. In the meantime, you can find the first season of Insecure Security Podcast on Spotify, Acast, SoundCloud, and at the Center for Global Security Challenges website. So we have a very special episode for you this week. With our amazing panel of guests, we will be answering questions which were put to us by undergraduate students taking the Security Studies module at the University of Leeds and addressing a key question. What is the future of Security Studies? Let me introduce some of our guests. We have Louise. So Dr. Louise Pierce is a lecturer in Global Security Challenges at the University of Leeds. Uh, Louise works on feminist security studies, popular culture and world politics, race and postcolonial IR and critical terrorism studies. Then we have Jack Holland, is a professor of global security challenges at the University of Leeds, and he's the co-director of the Center for Global Security Challenges and the editor of the British Journal of Politics and International Relations. Then we have Lucas. So Lucas de Belmont is a postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds in the School of Politics and International Studies. His research investigates international responsibilities to protect indigenous people in the Brazilian Amazon. Mohamed Abdi Mohamed is a postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds, researching the locally owned hybrid peace in Somalia and the gendered implications of different peace-building models. Dr. Laura Considine is an associate professor in international politics. She's also the co-director of the Center for Global Security Challenges, and her research involves looking at the role of gender in nuclear weapons and in nuclear politics. And currently she's working on a project on how to understand the everyday impacts of nuclear weapons. And then lastly, Dr. James Worrell is an associate professor in international relations and Middle East studies at the University of Leeds. His research lies in the fields of comparative politics, security studies and IR with a particular geographical focus on the Gulf and the Levant. He is also the co-editor of the journal Civil Wars. Now that we introduced our guest, the episode is yours. Enjoy! Okay, so thank you to all of the members of the panel and for all the students who've turned up for being here today. It's really great to have you for this event. I'd like to ask you, Jack, in the time that you've been teaching on security studies, working within the field of security studies, obviously there have been many changes in terms of the field itself and in terms of current affairs or broader events in the world. And I was just wondering, 
if you could reflect on the way in which the teaching of security studies has changed over that period and maybe how that will continue into the future? I think historically, you guys will know, security studies was very American. Things that explode, things that bleed. Increasingly, it's more than that. Increasingly, it's less than existential threat. It's also about life quality. It's security to do things as well as security from things. And that means moving theoretically, methodologically, and empirically, I think, into new areas. So you get new security challenges, but you also get new ways of thinking about and tackling those problems. I can answer this question with a kind of focus on the empirical. It's going to be more regions, more Indo-Pacific. It's going to be a lot of focus on Taiwan soon. I'm excited about the geopolitics of that region. But there's going to be a lot more on climate, which we'll probably hear about. And there's been a pandemic in the last few years while we've been trying to teach security studies. So health security is now a thing as well. But I think the more interesting argument than the empirical is the theoretical argument. So security studies is doing new and exciting things, especially in a European context. So you guys will be well-versed in the Copenhagen School, securitization. Maybe you're well-versed in the Welsh School, emancipation. Maybe the Paris School, if you really like your kind of post-structural theory. It's good and exciting stuff. I think that's the direction the discipline is moving in. And the question is, how do you hold it all together? Because it's a pluralist discipline. It's a really divided landscape. And the quants and the quals don't really like each other very much. It's hard to get them to talk to each other. They do different things in different ways. They think different things matter. They imagine security in different ways. And they create different knowledge claims about security. So holding the subdiscipline together, really difficult, really important. But how you get someone doing regression analysis to talk to someone doing global IR or a critical gender analysis, whatever it might be, that's going to be a challenge going forward. So if we get around to doing the second edition, that's the kind of stuff we're going to be wrestling with. It's just been delayed by the pandemic, as of so many things. Thank you so much for that. That was really great. Louise, have you got anything that you want to add? I guess maybe reflecting on this term's teaching. So I think that I would sort of unsurprisingly kind of echo Jack's claims that I see the contribution of feminist security studies and post-colonial security studies or critical race scholarship and the impact that that can have on security studies as being a really interesting and important thing that we need to continue to grapple with and that is making more and more of an impact into the discipline so upsetting the way that we've previously considered what we've previously considered to be the most important issues to think about and asking actually our conceptions of state so tied up with things like the Copenhagen school so tied up with a western perspective that those kind of theorizations aren't actually helping us anymore and what I've been really interested in so I cast your mind back 11 weeks and we spoke about what the greatest security challenges were and I asked in my early seminars for people to name those list those and prioritize those and I think that was really interesting because we got the ones you might expect of war but then in there was also ideas of social media ideas of health and ideas of inequalities and I don't think if you'd ask that question to kind of my seminar groups when I was at university in the distant past those have been the issues that we spoke about we'd have much more traditional war nuclear weapons and terrorism type answers so I think already you guys are asking questions of the discipline that maybe we need to respond to because you're already thinking about it you answered those questions before we'd schooled you in the correct way to think security so that was really interesting and I think some of the issues that you guys brought up around ideas of insecurities, inequalities, and social media are ideas that the discipline is going to need to grapple with more extensively. Thank you, Louise. So now we are going to move on to your question, the one that you actually wrote on the Padlet. So 
Lucas. The first question is, how does climate security endanger the state and what steps may be made to prevent this? Thank you, Marine. Thank you, Harry, for having me. I found this question to be quite interestingly framed because one would expect someone to ask about the lack of security or the climate insecurity. But the question explicitly says, how does climate security endanger the state? And also, it's not asking about human civilization or populations, it's asking about the state. So if we look at climate insecurity or the lack of climate security, it would be easier to think of small island countries, small island states, which are threatened by rising sea levels and might disappear in the near future. But when one looks at climate security or climate security measures endangering the state, I could not help but think of measures that impact territory or energy sources or f food sources. And, well, the example that I can think of, going back to what we see in Brazil, is that Brazil is a big food producer. We produce a lot of crops, a lot of beef. And this endangers directly indigenous peoples and the Amazon rainforest. Also, oil production, oil extraction might endanger the, well, you know, the environment, but brings short-term advantage to Brazil. So we have cheaper access to food, cheaper access to energy. So from a short-term perspective, the state may be more secure, might have its power strengthened, but in the near future, or actually in the long term, this will endanger the state itself and the population that live there. So the second question is, how can we prevent this from happening? I don't have a clear answer to that, but I think we can resort to what the indigenous peoples themselves are thinking of it. So the indigenous peoples in the Amazon have this concept of living well, which is a sort of a more comprehensive and holistic approach to development, to nation, to the state, to the environment. So they, f they not think of separate segments of, you know, economy and power and territory. They think that everything's connected. So protecting the Amazon, protecting the rivers, protecting our seas, are protecting ourselves, are protecting our lives. So maybe even if we have a short-term advantage of exploiting the Amazon or deforestation or, you know, oil ex extraction, in the long term, it would be more advantageous for the state and for humanity to protect these natural resources. So that's how I think about it. Thank you. Thank you so much for that and for bringing Indigenous people's perspectives that often aren't necessarily covered in a traditional security studies module. I guess for both of you and then maybe generally if other people had thoughts on it is there's this idea that, you know, the nature of climate change as a global threat will lead to global, potentially more kind of cosmopolitan solutions or cooperation. And yet during coronavirus, where we saw a similar kind of global security threat, if that's how you want to frame it, the one that's potentially faster acting than climate change, you know, people like David Runciman said that we saw a revival of the Hobbesian state and the nation state came back in a big way. So I guess as a question for you guys, and maybe starting with you, Lucas, do you think that the climate crisis will actually lead to kind of the re-emergence of the nation state or the strengthening of the nation state rather than this move to sort of global cooperation? I think the challenges do require more cooperation. So I just can give an example of what's happening in South America and Brazil. We just came out of a different, well, a sort of extremist administration, and we're moving into a more cooperative administration in terms of protecting the environment. And one of the solutions that's being promoted by the Brazilian government now is to be in more dialogue with our neighbors. So 
protect even if Brazil protects the Amazon on itself, it's not going to be enough because the Amazon is it's across borders across the, the entire continent of South America. So the challenges that climate change and climate security impose on us require more cooperation. So there will be no easy and fast solution if we go our own ways. What tends to happen is rather than talking about the empirics, I talk about the theory and the sub-discipline of security studies. So I think climate change and the pandemic are really useful for showing some of the limitations of the theories that you have learned about in the module. So the problem with things like the Copenhagen School and security cosmopolitanism, if you've touched on that, Anthony Burke and co, is they develop universal theory or universal normative stances, right? So the Copenhagen School says securitization is bad. You should desecuritize. If you desecuritize, the issue has moved into the realm of normal politics. You can create better policy. It's slower, it's more deliberative. Parliament has time to pass some decent legislation, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with that, it's a universal take that's massively Eurocentric. It completely naturalizes the idea that the ordinary state of affairs is pretty peaceful, the Kantian peace of Europe, and it tends to be white male professors who come up with a theory, and their lives are particularly secure compared to those on the, on, on the other side of inequalities who are not doing so well, using food banks, whatever it might be, right? Climate change might need to be securitized. The idea that desecuritization is the normative good might be wrong, and it might be reflective of the fact that the Copenhagen School came out of Copenhagen from some relatively wealthy Scandinavian professors, and an English one too. Security cosmopolitanism does similarly. It says we should behave in a cosmopolitanist ethic to work out what the right thing to do is for climate change and for the pandemic. Great examples, and it seems really powerful. Burke and Katrina Liku and Jonna Nyman have said, to work out if your behavior is ethical, if it's cosmopolitan, multiply it by everyone, everywhere and in the future, everything everywhere all at once, if you like. Again, the problem with security cosmopolitanism is it assumes that those kinds of calculations are possible. It's possible in a really privileged position where you might be able to drive your Tesla to the shop instead, or you might be able to use your app to get your groceries delivered instead, works in the pandemic, works in climate change examples, right? And those kinds of privileged considerations are not available to everyone everywhere. Some people have to act with more proximal security concerns. They're worried about the immediate survival or conditions for their family, whether I would argue in Europe, Europe is much more fractured than the homogenous space of a Kantian peace, or elsewhere in the world, where you're facing more everyday insecurities. So I like the theoretical play out of climate change and the pandemic. I think it shows you the limitations of what I would argue is universalist, Eurocentric critique from the Copenhagen School, from security cosmopolitanism and others. They're just two, I think, useful examples. Thank you, Jack. I actually have a follow-up question on that. So talking about securitization, desecuritization, Copenhagen School, etc. For climate, do you think we should potentially look at it from a human security approach or a national approach? Because in securitization, you have those different reference objects whether we look at the state or we look at the nation or we look at the human, the species. So what do you think? Matt McDonald is really good at showing in his book how those different discourses of security around climate change work, how they take different reference objects and how they do different things for different people. It's a kind of coxian argument of theories always for some purpose, for somebody. 
It's the same with climate discourses. If you privilege the human at an individual level, it does very different things to if you privilege humanity as a global collective or the biosphere, that thin layer of life around Earth, or you, or you privilege some other reference, the nation, state, the region, whatever else it might be. So I don't have an answer for you because I don't do research on climate, but Matt McDonald can explain to you what's at stake in the different ways of framing and talking about the problem. Louise, do you want to reflect on that question too, and this idea of securitization and the different reference object? When we spoke about it with the student and one of the ideas that was introduced in the lecture was this idea of the post-human and I saw the real kind of intellectual potential of more indigenous theories that have actually been grappling with the relationships between the built environment, between the natural environment and between people more comprehensively for a long time. So I think it really nicely ties back into some of the points that Jack was raising about where the discipline needs to go and the problems with its kind of Eurocentrism. And this might be a productive space where we say actually where we want the most effective answer to this or we want to think about this most deeply is actually to go to those knowledges that we have previously kind of ignored or more actively subjugated. And on that I wondered if Lucas wanted to talk a little bit more about that idea that you introduced in your answer of the way that Brazilian indigenous populations have thought it through. So it's called Living Well. That's a literal translation. It's Buen Vivir. So it means that to live well, you need to be in touch and in almost complete connection with your environment. So that's why the way indigenous peoples in the Amazon specifically, that's the populations that I'm looking at, the way they look at development, the way they look at The future is not in compartments as we try to frame it. So they think in long term. There is this very good metaphor of a shaman in, in the Amazon from the Yanomami people. He, he says the white man looks just to the mountain and his job is to look beyond the mountain. So he's trying to look at, you know, what we cannot see. So protecting the Amazon, protecting the environment and everything that lives in it not only living things, but also the rivers and the trees and, you know, the soil. That's what's necessary to our long-term survival on this planet. So that's the way they look at things. I think that was a really good way of combining theoretical discussions with looking at a particular instance and reference object in a way that hopefully is really useful. We're now moving on to talking about pop culture and security. Both Louise and Jack have worked on pop culture and security. So I just wanted to ask you if you wanted to talk about that as an emerging field and pop culture as an arena for security? That's a good question. So I've always had a side strand in my research that looks at pop culture, a variety of pop culture artifacts. Usually, my pop culture work has been on television, also massively derided. You know, it's not serious politics, is it? It's something you do at the end of the day when the serious stuff is, is done. I couldn't disagree with that more. But as I keep saying, this is a divided and a fractured discipline. It's fiercely contested. The phrase pop culture matters is uttered endlessly by those researchers who do pop culture research. It's an argument you have to make ad nauseum. I think, so the, the last time I wrote on this was 2019. My second monograph came out, which was on fictional TV and American politics. And I began writing this before 2016. It took like five years to write the book. And when I set out writing it, it was a really hard sell in IR and in security studies. Then Trump is a thing. And then Donald Trump is the televisual president, right? He is the pop culture president. He's a pop culture master. He's a genius at pop culture, which you'd love to hear. And you don't want to hear that, but he is. He absolutely dominates the airwaves. 
is a product of popular culture and that intersection with politics. And all of a sudden, people understood why I'm talking about shows like The Handmaid's Tale or The Sopranos. You want to understand Trump's language, look at The Sopranos, right? That final scene where you don't know if he's going to get caught or not. Very reminiscent to what's going on in New York right now. We're not quite sure if the net's finally going to close in on him. His language is that of, of kind of Italian-American, New York, like mafia-esque. It's the language of ratting and, and betrayal and traitors. It wants fierce loyalty. And we look at all sorts of shows. We look at The West Wing, which is now a bit dated for you guys. Any West Wing fans? Yeah, one or two. Yeah, there we go. So, right. This was confusing for people as well until Barack Obama wins. So Matt Santos is based on Barack Obama. When he's an early politician, a young non-white politician with liberal soaring rhetoric, and then Obama actually kind of crashes onto the national stage. He breaks through and becomes America's first black president. It's so weirdly tied up with season seven of The West Wing. It's really close with literal kind of overlaps in the language that's used. It's partly coincidental and metaphorical. It's partly literally the inspiration. This is what they set out to do. The argument in the book is that you help people to imagine things differently. You can develop resistance and critique in a moment where resistance and critique are difficult, like during the war on terror. You can help to create fertile conditions for not just the imagining of an American president who looks and sounds and does things differently. He's liberal as well as being America's first black president. It actually helps to enable that change to, to take place. So I think pop culture is being taken more seriously. But as I'm sure Louise would agree, if you're doing that kind of work, you're constantly having to defend the territory that you're standing on and the legitimacy of the artifact that you want to focus on. The idea that TV and pop culture matters is not one that is accepted all the way across the discipline, especially in its more quantitative, more American variants. Obviously, I'm another of those scholars who would argue that pop culture matters. For me, a lot of that is inspired by a feminist curiosity. So asking questions about the things that are at the margins or silences that we hitherto ignore in the proper discipline of international relations or the proper discipline of security studies. And for me, the questions that inspire most of the research that I do were like, how possible questions? How is it that we think that this is reasonable? How is it that this one wins public support? And those are the kind of questions that have this kind of feminist inflection that inspire the work that I do. So for me, I've also looked at TV. So one of the most recent things was thinking about the TV show SAS Who Dares Wins, which is like a imitation of SAS training in which civilians kind of take part in it to sort of win a competition. So it's sort of reality TV mixed with military training stuff. And the reason that I bring that artifact and say that's interesting is because the special forces are not subject to parliamentary scrutiny, right? Their actions and activities abroad as part of security policy don't receive that level of scrutiny. So as a population, we don't have to agree with their individual campaign. We have to think that they, as a whole thing, as a unit, make sense are legitimate and are useful and are a good thing. And I would suggest that few of you know the ins and outs of much military policy, but you are likely to have been exposed to the ideas of special forces training as being particularly incredible, of elite soldiers, of the British as being the kind of foundation of special forces. And some of those ideas come to you and come into their popular support, not through security policy or particular foreign policy actions, but instead through the stories that we tell about them. So for me, it's about investigating those places of stories. And then also what's really interesting for me in popular culture and a space that I'm hoping to move into is to think more about the relationship between social media and the stories that are told on social media and security. Because again, 
while they might not seem immediately co-constitutive, I would suggest that they are. So when we talk about pop culture, lots of people who work on pop culture are talking about things like TV, maybe film to a certain extent. So there's a lot of articles about kind of the politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and things like that. But it's interesting kind of working in the field that I'm in and some of the emerging think tank and analysis literature that focuses very much on social media and kind of meme culture. And do you think that there's potentially a generational problem in dealing with pop culture is that, you know, even as someone getting to the end of their 20s, there is a lot of media and pop culture that is just alien to me. I've never been on TikTok. I don't understand it at all. And yet, I also know that Islamic State have a massive TikTok presence and is really important to them. So do you think that there's potentially a kind of generational issue in dealing with pop culture? I agree. And it makes me think of the meme that just read me that was like, I don't watch TikTok. I watch it on Instagram a month and a half later, like a responsible adult. But there is a big problem with that. And one of the ways that it's manifested is you often see even research in social media uses Twitter as the place to take that from. And that happens for a couple of reasons. One, academics are on Twitter all the time. We like it. There's a real prevalence to look on Twitter and less enthusiasm to look at more recent social media spaces. So TikTok's a good example of that. I do some research on memes and there is kind of a subdiscipline that looks at the relationship between memes and security so the work that I'm doing there is just kind of an opening move to say that we need to take the humor and the register of memes seriously when we look at security thinking about responses to terrorism attacks that go through mimetic responses that give a different conception of security a different public reception to security issues than we might have otherwise looked at but I think that that's really true and that it's generational I'm also doing some work that will be with students to ask you guys about how you think social media could be better incorporated or what you need to know about social media and its relationship to international relations over the course of your degree and to recognize that whilst we might have expertise in security studies theory international relations theory in our historic accounts of it you'll have a better expertise in social media in particularly the places and platforms that we don't really use so how can we bring those together like I think a degree ought to equip you to see those spaces with the same critical view that you would read a journal article because back to the relationship to pop culture that's where you're gaining and peers are gaining their knowledge about world issues so you need to be able to approach that with the same attention to politics that we are kind of educating you to see in other spaces. Um, So yeah, I think there is a generational problem. And I actually think that rather than us kind of pontificate as a discipline on what to do, actually, maybe we should go to students and have that conversation and bring those expertise together the most effectively in that way. I agree completely. So when I first started teaching security studies, like properly was about 14 years ago. And it was considered really innovative at the time to hashtag the module code on Twitter so that you could create the channel where everyone could contribute. And at that time, students were still on Twitter, right? Like, you're gone now. Like, you're gone somewhere else. It's not the platform. And memes feel millennial to me, right? As a geriatric millennial, I kind of get it, right? Like, I kind of get memes. And I think you guys are kind of laughing at us. Still interested in memes and drinking cappuccinos. We are not... Gen Z. So yeah, I completely agree with that. I've had a look at TikTok, but I'm not digitally native on that platform. And I just end up with village cricket comedy and humor. I think the algorithms work me out, right? So I just get more and more comedy about people playing village cricket, which is of no use to anyone. But it's nice and slow and I have to wait for what's going to happen. So the algorithm's like, oh yeah, he loves that. So I just get more and more of it, which is not helping me at all with security studies, but that's where I am trying to use modern tech. Thank you all for this analysis of pop culture and security studies. So some of you this morning wrote a very interesting question 
which is with the new anti-protest bill, are we seeing a breakdown in our democracy as security laws get more authoritarian? So I really like this question and it was inspired by the arrests of protests around the coronation in particular. And I think that's really fascinating because it's where you can see and it's doing exactly what we hope you'll be able to take away from this module, which is to see security events or controversies and to think them through more thoroughly than you might have been able to previously, right? So what in those arrests, what's the referent object, if you want to use that language in those arrests, right? It's ideas of national security inflected onto the protection of the royals, which are themselves related to the idea of a protection of British values, which we're seeing immediately in that in those arrests come into debate with liberty, freedom of speech, the ability to protest, and particularly to be critical of the establishment. Um, and so it's those tensions that are really well manifested. I think, yes, I find the new bills that limit the amount of protests really dangerous and damaging. That's a political question, right? But it's something that you can understand better through the lens of security. And I know that it's something, Marine, that you've thought about extensively in the French example. Yeah, so I was reflecting also on the French example, because as you guys know, we are kind of famous for like protesting extensively. And we are seeing as well a securitization of of that, a securitized threat. The French people are framed as a threat and then you have a reduction of right to protest and I think this is a way to impact democracy to our democratic right to protest so I think this is very uh, I don't know if it is a European trend to reduce democratic right to protest but we are seeing it in the UK we are seeing in France right now I don't know if it's a European trend and maybe this is a question that you had for Lucas but there is something going on at the moment. Lucas, if you want to talk about the Brazilian case in this context, obviously there was the insurrection that seems similar to the insurrection that we saw around the White House and the use of anti-terror legislation, I think, to clamp down on some of those involved. But then also there's a longer history of securitizing indigenous rights activists as well. That might be I think the Brazilian example goes to the opposite direction of what's happening in France. So there is, there is this debate in Brazil about what tools we, we need to use to protect democracy. So if you're not aware, on January 8th, 2023, this year, far-right extremists stormed the three branches of government buildings, so Congress, the Supreme Court, and the Presidential Palace, in order to try to overthrow the government, protesting the election of the newly elected president. So the solution Brazil has found was to empower one judge, Supreme Court justice, give him a lot of powers to arrest, investigate, and, you know, fight against these extremist views, both on social networks, on social media, and in real life. So this debate, it's, it's still ongoing in Brazil. At the moment, we think that's what was, what was necessary to protect democracy from extremist threats. So, you know... How how tolerant can we be with views on social media about, you know, racist views or views against democracy? And yeah, there is no easy solution for it. There's no easy answer. This could very well backfire in the near future. So we started talking about how we should, you know, get back to normal life. But yeah, we're dealing with different challenges and different solutions are going to be experimental. And we, we just have to see it on a case by case basis, I think. So one of the students asked us, um, can meme culture also play a role in supporting counterterrorism 
and counter-extremism methods. Harry, what do you think about this? Thank you for that. I can speak about that like a little bit. So it's not certainly my area. I've focused on the centrally produced propaganda of Islamic State and now moving into looking at Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. But there is a lot of new work in the space on feminine culture. So I'd point you to there's the Loopcast podcast that had a very long episode about the role of Cambodian culture is comparing the use of it in right-wing and Islamist extremism. That was really interesting. And one of the things that they highlighted as kind of practitioners is that governments and states, precisely because of this generational challenge, and a lot of policymakers are you know, older than us even, that they have no idea how meme culture works either. And so they can often try to use meme culture or social media to create counter-narratives that then look really clunky and silly. And so there's been some discussion about whether that kind of counter-narrative has to itself be organic in a way, has to rise from the grounds up. So some people have talked about the NAFO movement, the kind of North Atlantic Fellows movement that some of you may have known about that exists on social media and sort of trolls Russian social media with regards to Ukraine as a successful non-governmental example of creating a kind of counter-narrative that serves essentially as, yeah, kind of counter-trolling from the ground up. I think the area that I've looked at, the article I'm trying to write, actually, <laughs> and about memes at the moment is the like vernacular, the everyday response made through memes to the terror attack in London Bridge where Usman Khan killed people on the bridge and in Borough Market and then bystanders fought back and famously a narwhal tusk was used, which might be what makes you remember it. And so that generated a really funny response about narwhals, basically, in meme culture. And to put really simply the the thing that I'm trying to use 8,000 words to say in this article is that in no way was the response to this the kind of traditional security response. It wasn't about vilifying the Islamic terror. It wasn't even about mourning the victims, the kind of solidarity memes you see, the like Je suis Charlie type memes that you got after the Paris attacks. It was kind of funny and irreverent. And that to me is not necessarily resistance, right? Humor is not necessarily resistance, but there's something productive in it, right? There's something that we need to understand that's going on there. And then talking about as well, the way that institutions are trying to catch up. I've also done some work with a colleague called Reese Crilly on the CIA's use of Twitter. Again, showing my age by using Twitter as the format, but that was the social media space that the CIA went onto and they launched a Twitter account and the Twitter account is really funny, right? So their, their most popular tweets are their opening tweet, which is, we can neither confirm nor deny that this is our first tweet which was a use of the Glomar response, which they've given in previously. No, we don't know where Tupac is. No, we can't tell you your password. They have pictures of the CIA cat. They really try and engage with this meme culture and generally to the audience they were talking to, it was pretty popular. So I also think there's something quite interesting about that like memetic space in the way that security institutions are trying to get involved in it. So GCHQ has an Instagram account. So it's, it's worth thinking about the way that they're trying to do that. And then I also think that there is productive space online for resistance right and then that you get into debates around whether it's like slacktivism or whether there's real space for a building through social media literature's talked a lot about the relationship between social media and the arab spring and protests but i think there's other ways that we could think that through so i think that that question in itself is really interesting and it's an area that the discipline is starting to look to and you also get so there's dr madeline labordon in the school who also thinks about the relationship between social media and kind of global citizenry and activism, right? And how that all plays in together. So I think all of those questions are kind of relating and kind of a direction that, that we could start to look in more thoroughly. 
So one question that we had from the audience is what are the implications for artificial intelligence, technologies, AI, for security studies and the risk for us? Harry, Jack, do you want to comment on that? I get, I'll talk about this like a little bit as well, because I was recently at ISSO International Studies Association annual conference that was in Canada and went to a talk that was given by someone about the 3D printing of guns and the way in which that opened up spaces for mass production of guns in a really cheap way and the ideological connotations of that. So particularly its use in Myanmar by rebel groups, but also the way in which it's kind of merged with right-wing culture. And I was talking to him afterwards about the way that AI and kind of chat GBT is almost potentially a propaganda version of that that allows you to produce things very quickly to a kind of solidly mediocre level. So if you can mess around with ChatGPT a bit, you can produce consistently okay Islamic State-style propaganda very quickly using ChatGPT that doesn't require much effort. And so I wonder if that will be something in the space with AI and also 3D printing that it allows for the democratization of production of both actual weaponry and kind of material objects, but also of propaganda and kind of digital artifacts as well. On the AI side of things, so AUKUS has two main pillars. One is nuclear submarines, nuclear powered submarines that everyone's obsessed about. The other one is advanced weaponry. So super high tech stuff like hypersonic, cyber, quantum, but AI is right up there. And you're going to get US, UK, Australia putting their resources together to come up with stuff that's greater than some of their parts. So in the next few years, you're going to see AI massively influential on the battlefield in a way that hasn't been previously, which is pretty terrifying because we don't know how. We don't know where, we don't know why, what it's going to look like, but this is it's on the horizon. And that's that's part of the kind of background to these states coming together and putting 400 and something billion dollars into the project. So it's huge. So I don't think I can say anything particularly intelligent about chat GPT as a technology, but I think for me, there has always been debates around the arrival of new technologies, which are either technology pessimism or technology optimism right it's either going to solve all of our problems or cause all our problems and unsurprisingly the academic answer I think is somewhere in the middle right there's potential for it to do great harm and there's also potential for it to do great good it is never itself a neutral platform it will always technology is always inflicted and inflected with the power dynamics that we see in every other space right so AI is racialized it is gendered it already has a relationship to capitalist production, right? It's already part of, it, it is born into the power structures that already exist. So to, to expect it to be different from that is perhaps naive, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't also be used to challenge some of those systems. I don't think it's inherently good or evil, but it's about its usages, which might seem kind of a banal point, but I think it's kind of worth stressing when we think about some of these questions in particular. Thanks for joining us on Insecure Security Podcast. Harry and I really appreciated it. So the students from this module wanted to ask you this. So reflecting on the failure of liberal peace building in Somalia's context, how is security understood within the context of peace building? My research looks at hybrid peace building in the context of Somalia. Before I get into what hybrid peace building entails, I will be discussing the concept of peace building in security studies or peace and conflict. We can certainly look back into the work of Johann Galting, who was one of the first pioneers or the scholars that came up with the idea of peace building. 
What Johann Galton argued was that they needed to be sustainable peace building structures that needed to be promoted in order to understand violent conflict or civil wars in post-conflict nations. But also what he argued at that time was the inclusion or the promotion of indigenous knowledge in order to understand peace and conflict. What I mean by indigenous knowledge is the knowledge that is usually associated with the countries or the societies that are experiencing civil wars or that are experiencing conflicts and indigenous knowledge means every nation has a way of solving things or solving conflict and we officially started seeing the inclusion of peace building in the early 90s at that time when there was countries that have been experiencing civil wars or that have experienced civil wars in the early 90s, when peace building was officially included into the work of the UN Peaceful Agenda, we started seeing the interventions of the UN and certainly international community. And what I mean by the international community is external powerful nations, and whether that is the US, the UK, France, Italy as well. So it's external actors intervening countries that were into or that have experienced civil wars. However, the interventions of those countries, to a certain extent, have not been successful and uh, they have not been effective. And a good reason for that is the way peace building was essentially associated with Johann Galton was completely different from the work of the UN and these international actors as well. At the first of the interventions... There was not room for inclusion of indigenous knowledge. It's just peace building was a way of an understanding of Western countries and how they've understood peace and conflict and assumed that their way of promoting peace would be essentially sustaining peace or bringing stability to these post-conflict nations. But that hasn't been the case. And we can certainly look at countries like Liberia, Rwanda, Kosovo, Somalia as well, where these interventions have been carried out by the United Nations, but how they've carried out is essentially a top-down approach. And what I mean by top-down approach is imposing values and knowledge to these people. And what that does is it essentially goes away from the cultural values of these people. And what we see is a clash of understanding. From that moment and in the early 90s, when peace building was promoted essentially from a Western perspective or a liberal perspective, a lot of countries where the interventions have been carried out have not been successful. If anything, these countries have relapsed into conflicts. There can be cases of whereby the conflicts maybe has reduced, but the institutional building or the economic reform have not taken place and in order for a country to become peaceful all these things must be taken into perspective. We started seeing in the late 90s when the liberal peace building or the peace building interventions have failed the promotion of local understanding or local ownership of peace building and this is where I look the concept of local ownership or in other words hybrid peace building. What local ownership means is, in other words, the locals or the people that are experiencing civil wars or conflicts to take ownership of building their institutions or doing economic reforms rather than having external interference. It's more of the local people being supported to promote peace in their countries. 
In these countries where liberal peace building has failed, there's a parallel discussion between the liberal peace building and local ownership. And to what extent these two parallel approaches of peace building have brought peace building. When we are discussing the concept of local ownership, we need to actually understand who are the locals because the locals can be different people, but also they can be manipulators or peace spoilers within the local people as well. My research looks at how the concept of hybrid peace building, which is essentially merging the liberal peace building and the local ownership of peace, interact with each other when it comes to solving conflicts, but also understanding who the locals are in this concept. And a particular case study that I look at is Somalia, where you would have the concept of liberal peace building being tried in the early 90s that failed. But also we've started seeing the promotion of bottom-up perspective. What I mean by bottom-up perspective is approaching peace from the bottom, which is the local concept. It's not just Somalia that have had a peaceful bottom-up local ownership successful peace or successful conflict resolution. We can certainly look at the case of Timor-Leste, where there was a bottom-up perspective and they've attained peace. But my argument is, in the case study of Somalia, for the last 30 years, the liberal peace building has failed, but also the bottom-up perspective has not failed, but it has not brought up a viable state building, where there are strong institutions, where there are judiciary systems, where there is law and order. A great discussion of this is that I look at is particularly regions within Somalia where the bottom-up perspective has been tried, like particularly Somaliland, where a lot of, in the concept of local ownership of hybrid peace building, scholars would say and it's a successful peace building because there's a stability within that region compared to the south of Somalia, where there's still wars happening, but not compared to the early 90s. So my research understands how also local people can manipulate the concept of local ownership or bottom-up perspective because in the case study of particularly Somalia you would have a lot of locals and the locals have to be defined so you'd have the politicians, women, youth, warlords, chiefs which is clan elders, traditional authorities so my argument is essentially looking at the interactions of how these people interact with each other on everyday security or everyday politics. And what I argue particularly is when it comes to the local ownership of peace building, it's a difficult perspective, but in a way it resonates with the local people and they understand their culture better than an external actor, which is the liberal peace building. But also in order to understand how peace can be sustained or how we can promote sustainable peace, there needs to be a discussion of how or which type of local actors can be promoters of peace or which type of local actors can also be manipulators of peace. And this is where my research stands. And in order for future peace building to be understood in the arena of security studies, now that the UN has officially included local ownership of peace building into the agenda, this discussion or my research needs to broaden the horizon for peace building researchers or an understanding of peace building and how local ownership of peace building and the liberal peace building which is promoted by the West interacts with each other. Laura, 
Thanks for joining us on Insecure Security Podcast. So our episode is designed around the future of security studies. And why our question. So reflecting on your research and expertise, we wanted to know what is the future of security studies? I think that there are several dynamics that are going to be increasingly important or I think are increasingly important for the future of security studies. I think the first one is the increasing awareness and importance of thinking about the interconnectedness of security issues. So I work on nuclear weapons, which is a very traditional security issue. And traditionally, the scholarship on nuclear weapons has really been siloed into focusing on nuclear politics, nuclear strategy, looking at the nuclear domain as a realm of security, you know, just as focusing on, on that one aspect, looking at it as a kind of self-contained space and realm of security. And I think it is becoming more and more obvious that we cannot look at security issues like that anymore. That in terms of enabling political action and in terms of understanding the security challenges, we need to think much more holistically about security issues and how they interconnect and reinforce and undermine each other. So, for example, in my field of nuclear politics, there are, you know, people who are now, I think, importantly, starting to think about how nuclear weapons interconnect with other issues. So, for example, how nuclear weapons and the history of nuclear testing, nuclear production interact with issues of environmental degradation, how nuclear weapons maintain a militarized sphere of security that, you know, is fundamentally an issue in terms of the climate or the carbon production of militarized states, how nuclear weapons testing and production interacts with issues of public health and also the economic costs of nuclear weapons and how that relates to other issues of economic welfare and social justice. So I think looking at these issues in a much more holistic and rounded way is really, I think, a key direction that we need to think about looking at for understanding security as we go forward. I think linked to that, security has been a very kind of position of power from which to speak. So we talk about security threats and security challenges often from the West, from a position of security and thinking of external others that then cause us insecurity. I think that position, you know, as well as being a very, you know, elitist and problematic position, it's also increasingly unsustainable because we are realizing more and more to what extent we are all vulnerable and how vulnerable we will be in the future, particularly in terms of climactic impacts and environmental issues and all the security dynamics of this. So I think another another dynamic that's happening and that is growing is looking at how security happens in the everyday, how we produce and reproduce security and security in our everyday lives and how we can understand that as connected to broader dynamics and challenges of security at national, at international levels. So I think looking at how we live our everyday lives in relation to increasingly prevalent 
insecurities, even for people who have been previously very privileged in terms of their lack of vulnerability to these issues, is something that we need to think into account. And finally, I think that the future of security studies requires a reflection on the ways in which the logic of security and the practices of security have helped maintain and reproduce hierarchies, exclusions and inequalities. So this is our, this has started in terms of how critical approaches you will have dealt with in your module have challenged state-based and you know, military security approaches and what they don't include or who they don't listen to. But also there's been further reflection on the racialized and the colonial dynamics of critical security approaches as well. And there was a recent debate on questions of racism in securitization theory. And I think apart from that specific controversy, I think it's really important that we reflect on how our understandings and practices of security, particularly here in the UK, in a very privileged position internationally, how those practices and understandings of security might reproduce and reify some of the challenges and dynamics that actually, you know, are causing insecurities in the first place. So to kind of be a bit more specific about this, to give you an example, you know, how are the ways that we think about our needs and our economic security and our standard of living? How are they embedded in practices that might fundamentally be unsustainable and, you know, create and exacerbate broader insecurities in the future? And, you know, particularly insecurities for people who, you know, might be much more vulnerable than us to the impacts of climate change. So how do we need to rethink our lives and our relative security in relation to others and how our search for security might actually have much broader international impacts on both ourselves and others and reflect on the search for security and what that might do and the the limits and the challenges and the problems of thinking about our lives in terms of trying to search for security. Okay, so we're here with James Worrell. So James, the student asks, is there a link between the securitization of terrorism and censorship of speech surrounding Israel-Palestine? That's a good question. That's not really the easiest one to answer either, but I'll give it a stab. So clearly terrorism is securitized in various different ways. We all know that it's part of the game. In terms of its link with Israel-Palestine though, I mean, firstly, you'd have to accept the notion that there is some form of censorship around that particular issue. I think there's contestation and attempts to, to censor or at least to circumscribe what is acceptable speech around the Israel-Palestine conflict. But at the same time, we also see that the Israel-Palestine conflict is highly politicized. People have very strong opinions, even if they don't actually have any real connections with that conflict whatsoever, they still have incredibly strong opinions. And mostly people are not afraid to voice those opinions. I think we've seen some shading around the edges when it comes to issues of, of anti-Semitism and what exactly classes as anti-Semitism. And there are some really interesting and important debates around that. But in terms of the way in which terrorism links across and the attempts to securitize terrorism, clearly parts of the Israeli state have done so. 
But at the same time, that would be, in a sense, natural, given the threats and given the nature of the asymmetries of the Israel-Palestine conflict itself. And so what we see, I think, is ultimately that when we look at um, this particular conflict, it partly depends, of course, on whether or not you class elements of it as terrorism on the age-old adage of one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And so ultimately, in terms of both international law, but also standard forms of, of ethics, which I think are generally globally acceptable, we tend to see, of course, that there are clear terrorist actions on behalf of Palestinian terror groups, or some people might wish to call them insurgents. And in, in a sense, there's a really important debate and distinction to be made between the idea of terrorism and the idea of insurgency when it comes to the Palestinian conflict. But that's really a separate question. But it does feed in here in the sense that there are clear targets inside Israel in terms of civilians which have been deliberately targeted by many of these groups, but also by lone wolf terrorists who have, have kind of, in effect, kind of self-radicalized and not necessarily connected with the major groups. What we've also seen in recent weeks and months in particular is the rise of new forms of resistance actors who have engaged in terrorist-like practices, particularly coming from towns like Nablus and Janine, who are not really fitting into the traditional kind of mode of Palestinian insurgency and are much more kind of independent, much more loosely organized. So again, it feeds into this debate, but at the same time, I think we can certainly say that the, the wider securitization of terrorism has kind of fed in to the Israel-Palestine discussions, but I don't necessarily think that it, it feeds into the idea of censorship. There is some intersection and overlay, but they are quite different debates because ultimately, in a sense, one is really about actions and what the nature of those actions are and what the targets of those actions are and whether or not they can be truly justified. So where do these uh, dividing lines actually occur between what is a legitimate and illegitimate target? I think the Israel-Palestine conflict is particularly interesting given the nature of the idea of occupation and the way in which that feeds over into legitimate and illegitimate forms of resistance to that occupation. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that there's anything really much in terms of the way in which the question frames things in, in terms of censorship. I think there's a wider attempt across multiple different discourses, even disconnected with ideas of terrorism, to attempt to delegitimize the state of Israel. Um, what is known in, in the literature is this idea of lawfare and the ways in which you can use the law, you can use discourse, you can use ethics. Uh, you can use the very language itself in attempt to actually delegitimize the very existence of that particular state. And so that is a wider kind of contestation battle, which also feeds into narratives of resistance by armed groups themselves. So there's intersections, but there's also clear separations between those different particular narratives. Ultimately, everything comes down to security when it comes to Israel, given the range of threats that it has faced. Uh, over the course of its history, and given the nature of the difficult and complicated field that it faces in terms of non-state asymmetric actors in these particular days, some of which can be classed as, as terrorist organisations relatively easily, others of which are much more aligned with insurgent forms of, and modes of, of action uh, more generally. So there's a, there's a debate as to whether or not some of these things are truly terrorism or whether they're forms of insurgency and feeds into those literatures as well. But ultimately, it's really about this wider narrative of Israel's legitimacy and its very right to exist. And that, of course, goes far beyond the traditional two-state solution. 
to the conflict into a much more kind of zero-sum game of win or lose and whether or not Israel gets to exist at all on the face of the earth. And that is a truly existential kind of crisis for the state of Israel and in a sense connected to that, the status of the Jewish people themselves in that particular region. And so given that, that kind of wider narrative and threat, the whole idea of boycott, divestment and sanctions, all of these kind of, um, in a sense, non-violent threats to the existence of the state of Israel have been elevated by many actors within the state of Israel to existential level threats on a similar kind of level to that of actual violence against people who are living in the state of Israel. So it's pretty complicated. A lot of different ideas are kind of woven together. I did say it was quite a difficult question to answer, but hopefully I've given it a decent shot there. Oh, thank you for such a comprehensive and in-depth answer to you know, the difficult question. Thank you. That was great. We would like to thank all of our guests for taking part in this episode and thanks to all of you who are listening to the podcast, especially those that sent in questions. We'd also like to thank Dr. Louise Piers for giving us the opportunity to engage with students in her security studies module at the University of Leeds. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all other major podcast apps and platforms to get future episodes directly into your feed and take a look at the Centre for Global Security Challenges website to find further cutting-edge research on today's topic. If you enjoyed this episode, then please remember to leave us a rating and review. Stay tuned. Our next episode will be coming out next week and we interviewed speakers at the CGSC EGIS conference, Security in Time of Body Crisis, which showcased how intersecting crises shape our contemporary world. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on Insecure Security Podcast. But until then, stay safe, stay secure. Bye for now. It was Harry and Marie. Insecure. A security podcast.